Escape Pod 83 December 7th, 2006 Today's story, Ula, by Daniel Schwabar. Hello, I'm Steve Ely, and welcome to Escape Pod. Sponsored this week by FundableFilms.com, bringing filmmakers and film lovers together. We'll have more on them after the story. I think it's a cool idea. So, Escape Pod gets a lot of email. That makes us pretty blessed among podcasters, and I love it, even if it takes me a little while to respond. Over time, we start to see trends in that email, and when a question or comment starts coming more frequently, we've got to take notice. One such question that we're seeing more and more often is this. I'm quoting a fellow named Basil here. I was wondering if escape artists had considered launching a fantasy podcast, following the form established by Escape Pod and Pseudopod. That's an excellent question, Basil, and everyone else who asked. Several months ago, my answer was, interesting idea, but we've got our hands full, and anyway, I think science fiction and fantasy go together better than horror does. That's still true, but lately people have also been more assertive in asking for more science fiction on Escape Pod, so I think it's time to explain what's going on here, and what could happen. The simple answer is this. Escape Pod has been running more fantasy lately because more authors have been submitting good fantasy than have submitted good science fiction. I'm not turning down any excellent SF stories. We're buying the ones we think will entertain you in audio. I'd like to see more science fiction here, too, but we can't have it if people don't send it to us. People are sending us good fantasy, so that's what you'll tend to hear. The idea of a separate fantasy podcast does have some merits. It would let Escape Pod narrow its focus to science fiction, and people who enjoyed both genres could subscribe to both podcasts and get twice the fiction each week. Disadvantages? Well, I personally like the diversity of Escape Pod. And there are a lot of practical obstacles. Money is a big one, of course. Finding someone, or a few someones, with the right skills to help take charge is another. But the biggest problem, and this may surprise some of you, is stories. I won't consider any change that would lower the overall quality of the stories we run, and that means we can't even think about splitting the feeds unless I'm confident that we can get 52 good science fiction stories and 52 good fantasy stories every year. That's a very tall order. It's not insurmountable, but it does mean we need more good work. If you're a writer, maybe we need your work. And if you have a favorite short story author, maybe you can drop them a line to encourage them to check us out. Anyway... No guarantees, of course, but we would like to know what you think. There's a poll on the site, and of course you can leave us a comment. So, with that intro, will we do science fiction or fantasy this week? Lucky day, we're doing science fiction with some very deep roots. We're pleased to present Ula by Daniel Schwabauer. This is a retelling of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds from a different perspective than the one you know. Mr. Schwabauer is an author and speaker living in Kansas, his young adult novel, Runt the Brave, won the Ben Franklin Award last year for Best New Voice in Children's Literature. He's also got some great writing resources on his site, danschwabauer.com. This story first appeared in Tailbones in 1998. The story is read for us by the dynamic duo of Jared Axelrod and J.R. Blackwell. They're both good-looking. They're both incredible writers whose work can be found at 365tomorrows.com, an SF project with a new flash fiction piece every day. And they both have terrific podcasts, The Voice of Free Planet X and Voices of Tomorrow, 
featuring more excellent stories and audio. Do you hate them yet? You can't in person. They're just too good looking. So, meditate now and find your inner peace. It's story time. Ula by Daniel Schwabauer. 7022. Ula. The moment has nearly come. We'll begin killing them soon. I wish I could see you again before then, or at least have the soft pleasure of your voice. But I must be content with the pulse of your mind through the thought tablet, already five hundred rotations past. Your thoughts do comfort me, and I hope that these thoughts of mine comfort you as well. It is right for the council to have struck our names from the rock. We who go to kill can have no honor even among ourselves. I confess I did not really believe this when we left, for it has been an incalculable time since our race last succumbed to the bloodlust, and my only taste of it has been the shifting images of the crew left as I slept. But now I believe the striking of our names from the rock is wisdom, because I have been thinking of killing, and no punishment is too severe for what we are about to do even if our actions are necessary. The world we now occupy is red, forth from its sun, and extreme in its temperature. The atmosphere is lethal. Without our shelters, we would die. But we will not be here long. Already, the attack cylinders, loaded with machinery and the weapons of destruction, stand ready in the firing tubes. Soon I shall be sending you thoughts from the third planet. I have loved you. Dueth Skrull. Six, five, five, four. Dear Skrull, Things shall have changed greatly when you receive this. Your ship travels fast now, and every word flowing through my limb to the thought pad takes five rotations to complete. I am told that the soonest any message can reach you is some time after you occupy the base world. But I am satisfied with that. I have lived with you for ten thousand rotations, and I shall live with your thoughts until they stop, and your memory until our sun expires, or the invaders, in the event of your failure, arrive. In the crystal garden a new flower blooms, its center is smooth as ice, and brilliant as morning. I have named it Duskrana to remind me of you. Seeing it pleases me. In a thousand seasons, its facets will be as large as the tips of my limbs, and I shall have to remove it to the water lawn. I shall not advise you to be careful, only to do what you must without malice. I have never known the Krusleth to err, but who knows? Perhaps the dreams of the Krusleth show us not what must be, but what might be. And hasn't the council sent you? But even if the chain of nexts is unbreakable... Do not allow the bloodlust to invade you, nor expect to be invulnerable to it. I have respected the one you are, the one of peace and self-sacrifice. I have even respected you against all command for what you must do now. But I cannot bear to remember you in rage. Let the future show that our enemies were evil, even at the cost of ourselves, rather than become that way again. Think to me soon. I have loved you, Ula. 7023, Ula. I have been occupied. The time came for the command to fire the first cylinder, and my thoughts gave me reason to pause. Rithgannulk asked for the command, but I made him wait. 
I went to my quarters to be alone. I thought of the river behind our home, the sound of the water against the rocks, the glint of the light against the slivers of crystal near the bank where the current cannot quite reach. How many nows have we shared, you and I? How many moments since our forefathers, some of which still live, indulged the passions of our former nature? Was this world we are about to destroy even born yet? I have watched them, and they fascinate me. Their lives are over as we blink. To live a thousand rotations is a great accomplishment among them, and yet they exterminate one another as though each were an insensate matter. A bit of dust, a few drops of hydrogen. Perhaps that is all they are, after all. And yet they speak, twittering like jugotherin. They dance, they sing, they make music, they clamor and jeer and vibrate. Were it not for the great shivering commotion of life and noise that smothers their existence, I could find myself thinking that they might someday create a culture. But there is never, not even once, a now of silence among them. Still, I thought, this is not an evil, for one does not blame the river for its incessant gurgle. Perhaps their noise is a difference which could become greatness in them. But I have this against them. They hate. They envy. They kill without remorse. They invent new ways of doing evil. They possess a bloodlust which diminishes ours. I know this because they admit it. But they do not confess it in themselves with sorrow. They confess it against one another. They shake their limbs at their neighbors in fury at the evil they profess to despise and then do the same evil themselves. I think the universe will not be a lesser place without them. The universe will be diminished only because, upon my command, so many of my brethren will have become killers. My only regret is I cannot carry this shame and horror alone. When I returned to Rithgenolk, I gave him the command to fire the first cylinder. I wish now that I could have been the first to arrive, the first to make contact, the first to kill. It would be easier for me to think that my actions had begun to shame rather than mere words. But as commander, I must be the last to arrive. The atmosphere of their world is, as we suspected, a poisonous vapor. Our bodies cannot long survive the foreign microbes in the air. The first team will prove to us how long we have. If we can live sufficient time to assemble and detonate the global chain of blast cylinders, then we shall wear no life masks. We shall suffer an agony like that which we inflict, even before the sun is blotted from their sky and their world is plunged into cold and darkness. We decided this together, and the decision has made me proud in this one respect of my command. Our world brings death to theirs. Their world shall bring death to us. It is our last hope and honor. Think kindly of me, though I shall not be alive to receive it. I have loved you. U.S. Screw. Six, five, five, five. Dear school. The council met today. Someone has had a vision. I can guess what it was about, for everyone seems worried. A hundred times today I heard mutters of, The cruelest does not lie. Our neighbors look at me with a mixture of admiration and disgust. This confuses me, for we have all submitted to the council in everything. At the end of the day, everyone dispersed, and the night stars glimmered like crystals in the garden of Cruz. I stood alone and gazed upwards, as though I might find your star somewhere among them.
You are out there, I know, staring back at me over the black void of night even now. I can almost feel your caress, your soft words of comfort, your promise of life. Do you remember telling me that love is the hybrid fruit of sorrow and joy? I only thought that I understood you then. Now I see more clearly. Love is not merely the countless shimmering stars that spin through the universe. It is also the awful distance between them. Think to me, Ula. Seven zero two three dash two. Ula. I gave the command for the firing of the second to last cylinder. I shall go when I have finished this letter. Rithkinolk shall stay at this base until the planet is destroyed. Then he will return home with knowledge of the outcome. I have no pleasure in reporting that the war has already begun, and that the resistance by the enemy has been futile. They die wantonly. Their finest fighting machines to this point are helpless before the blast of our heat rays. Their cities are like insect colonies. The destruction is horrifying. I've tried to alleviate it somewhat by the aggressive containment of our strategic areas, but, like the intelligent creatures they are, they seem to value most highly what we take and despise what we are willing to let them, temporarily, keep. Thus I have ordered the spread of the toxic gas which we are prepared from the space. I swore to myself I would spare you the details of my dreams, but I find I cannot. For I know someday you will have time to reflect upon my actions, and though I know that publicly you must view our mission with shame, privately I wish you to be pleased with me. It comes to this. The bloodlust has begun in my men, and I haven't the arrogance to think that I alone, after arriving and participating in the slaughter, shall be exempt from this instinctive desire. I see the machines of the enemy as they alight on the surface of our world. Graceful, swooping wings like those of the Taramaluk, fixed to crescent bodies, huge as mountains, terrible in sound, as though enraged, Vast as the desert sands. These disgorge their machines, three-legged weapons of destruction, equipped with heat rays and capable of squatting to enter our buildings or running like sand sigets over valleys and hills. They have war walkers. Our people are destroyed, tortured by fire. I see you, my beloved, and the awful specter of death on three metallic legs crouching at our door. I hear you scream. This future may not be avoidable, but the Council has decided to consider such streams warning and to resist the invaders by the same methods they would otherwise use on us. It was not my choice, and I don't know if it is right. I only know that I would rather die this way than cowering behind our door. I must go now, for Rithganolk grows impatient for me to give the order. I have loved you. U.S. Skrill. Six, five, five, six. Dear Skrull. I sit by the river with a thought pad. Dawn approaches with her curtain of light. The tingle of crystals on my skin gives warmth, just enough to make the chilling vapor of night pleasurable. The sound of water against rock draws me to you, as though you were here now. I lean against the bank and close my eyes. For just this moment, I do not care that your name has been stricken. 
I do not care that the Kruseth grows. I do not care that the council is in turmoil. There is this now, the river, the crystals, the air, and the thought of you. Ulla. 7024. Ulla. Only my will brings me to the thought pad. I have killed, and I have felt the bloodlust. My cylinder landed last on the island, and my command began the final preparations for detonation of the blast cylinders. An enemy appeared beyond the ridge of our primary defenses. He held a missile weapon before him. He stared at us for what seemed a long time. An animal howled next to him. Then he raised the weapon in both... What, what do I call them? The lips are jointed like the forelimbs of the Jurgotharin. He raised the weapon in both forelimbs and fired at us. The projectiles would be deadly enough to our bodies, but cannot pierce the armor of the cylinder. That itself is encouraging, because we now know with certainty that they do not actually have war walkers or he rays, nor do they possess the freedom of mechanical flight. So perhaps the Kruslefs speak only of possibilities after all. Perhaps our efforts to fashion weapons like those which we saw in our dreams were unnecessary, even from the standpoint of justice. But these questions are irrelevant now. For a moment, beloved Ula, I hesitated. I feared myself. I wondered if this enemy had thoughts like mine, desires, opinions, regrets. Then I gave the command, and the heat ray which we took from them by the Kruslev was turned upon him. His body twisted in agony for just a moment before death, and then there was an awful silence. Oh, my beloved Ula, if I ever felt such a complete union of joy and shame on our world, the ground would have run wet with the blood of my brethren. I scan the horizon now for more enemies to kill, because I cannot stop my desire. It is only training that keeps me from leaving this place in a war walker and spreading the destruction. Soon, the blast cylinder link will be ready, and our shame will end. I have loved you. Duet Skrull. Six, five, five, seven. Dear Skrull, the council wavers. No one has dreams. We all know that the Kuslev is erratic, but now they attribute the silence of Kruths to some fault. Our neighbors assign blame at random. I believe that they would rather see enemy ships in the sky than not know what to expect. And now I have this thought. What if Cruz speaks also to the enemy? Forgive me this profanity, but I see a deep irony. Perhaps when we are dreaming dreams, the Cruz left is silent, and when ours is silent, they are dreaming dreams. Could knowing the future be evil? I have loved you, Ula. 7025 Ula I grow weak. Four of my command have been killed by the enemy, and six by the alien atmosphere. This planet is torture to us. The air is too thin, and the island where we have landed is cold. Water condenses easily and patters against our bodies, but there is no pleasure in it. Crystals here are rare. I have heard the enemy rations them for food, but there is a taste of them in the air when the wind blows up from the sea for it is a slight crystal content. 
Three of my command were destroyed by an enemy ship when they went to the ocean to bask in the crystal water. But I have ordered everyone to stay away. This is, of course, also torture. Soon I will be able to give the command for detonation, and our pain will be over. I have loved you. Do have to screw. 6558. Dear Forgive my last thoughts. The insanity must be touching me also. I have loved you, Ula. 7026, Ula. Cruz, forgive. I spread gas to stop them. They run in terror because they know not our agony. I scream at them when I train the Hire upon their bodies, their houses, their weapons. I shriek with ecstasy. I shiver with the coldness of myself, this awful power of loosing the tension from the temporal. Death beckons. It reeks around us. It addicts. It draws more powerfully than the crystals. My beloved Ula, I would hide from you what I am. But you have loved me, and something inside me compels me to utter honesty. My command disintegrates. My warriors are dying. I feel the alien microbes at work in my body even now. Next message shall be my last. Do I skill? 6559. Dear This, according to our time schedule, will be the last message you receive but I shall keep thinking to you just in case. Somehow, at the edge of the void, our transmitted thoughts will mingle in waves of light the way our lives did, and in this way we shall always be together. The Kruslef returned to one of the council, I know not whom, and things have settled. As though in shame our neighbors circled our home last night, I heard the scuttle of their limbs as I slept, and then the murmur of voices in unison. I peered through your window to see them standing three deep in almost hushed silence. Outside they bowed to me, and we listened to the water for a while. No one spoke. After a long time, Emithrol of the council placed a stone before me. It was the center stone from his garden. It has always been his most treasured piece. Beloved dear scroll, do you know what was on that stone? Your name. Engraved as it once was upon the rock of meeting, except Emithrol had pressed crystal into the surface so that your name would shine. I could not look at them, for my heart was filled. When dawn came, I saw that they had left during the night, and now I am thinking this for you, because I cannot bear to think of your shame. The sun has come. My thoughts grow heavy. I have loved you, Ula. 7027. Ula. Let this be a record for the council. It will be news, since Rithganok cannot reach home before this message finds you. This now, my command, finish the blast cylinder link. My second failed due to health, so I sent him to his quarters, but he is now dead. I completed the calculations for simultaneous detonation myself. I contacted the six other teams and ordered them to prepare. I gave them time for Cruz. Then, so I thought, I would destroy this world. The bloodlust beckoned me, and I have not overcome it, but I knew that no enemies would be near, and I wanted to be alone. I wanted to see something of this world before it is gone. I mounted a war walker and entered the city. 
Evidence of the enemy's terrified retreat lay strewn in the cluttered emptiness of the black dust left by the gas. The mists of the morning curled upwards from the ground. My eyes were drawn to movement, and I felt the lust of death rising in me. Without thinking, I pushed the war walker down the street. An enemy stood there, closing the door to his building. His skin was wrinkled, and he stooped, as though in pain. In his forelimb, he was clutching something as though it were precious. He looked at me for a moment, and then at the thing he held, and then back at me. He might have been frightened, I I don't know. I almost killed him then. But something stopped me. Again, he looked at the thing he held, and then placed it gently upon the ground and walked slowly to the middle of the street. He stared up at me, limbs outstretched, and I understood Your thoughts were with me, Ulla. He did not wish his treasure to be harmed. Kill me, he seemed to say. Burn my flesh, but not that thing which I have placed far from me. I thought of Imruthul's stone. I thought of you, Ulla. I thought of what I had been, of what we had been before we came here. I thought of our people before we decided to attack the enemy, for I believe that that is when our death really began. But even these thoughts, even my shame, could not stop my desire. I killed him, Ula. I will not say that I didn't mean to, because I did. And I believe I would do it again. I enjoyed killing the enemy. Even then, even now, thinking of it, the shame of pleasure taints my remorse. Afterwards, I lowered myself with some effort to the ground and turned the body over so I could see its expression. I had given it a short burst, and much of the flesh was destroyed, but I could see the moment of agony in which it had died, still etched onto its face, as though the act itself were recorded in rock for all time. I went to the doorway to retrieve the thing he had held, and when I picked it up I saw that it was a sort of book, with still images of the enemy fastened to the thin, brittle pages. In these images, the enemy stood with his face pressed to that of a female. Perhaps this was a pleasant memory, a long-past ceremony of otherness. I took the book back, and I set it on the enemy's chest. Forgive me, I said. Perhaps I should feel foolish asking forgiveness from a dead enemy. But somehow this seems like the least foolish thing I have done in a long time. I hear the clamor of the other units now in my thought link, and I tell them to enter the void in silence. I tell them that I am still in good health and will detonate the cylinders at the last moment, and so purchase that much more honor. I do not wish them to know what I plan, for they might try to stop me. They do not detect my lie. In short time it will be too late anyway, for we all die quickly now. I climb back into the war walker and leave the canopy flung wide to the sky. Oh, my beloved, we have been such fools. The cruise left showed us what was to come and we tried to avoid it. We sacrificed ourselves to save what might be, and in the process we have lost both. Forgive me. I see the enemy in my mind. They will gain courage to attack again and they will find us dead. And when they do, they will find our machines. They will find the method of our world's destruction.
And they will say, as we did, that it is only right to attack us with the same tools we used to attack them. And some rotation hence, they will come to our world in bright crescent cylinders with wings like Taramaluk. And they will disgorge war walkers and burn and kill. And we who stole the heat ray from them will be the ones to have given it to them. Ula, beloved Ula, I beg you, speak to the council. Beseech them, cry out to them for me. Let the enemy come. Do not raise weapons against them. Let them do what they will, though it means I lose you as you have lost me. Let us regain something of what we have lost. If you cannot persuade the council, then share these my thoughts with them, and I will speak from the dead. Ula, my Ula, I cry to you from across the distance. I take great gasping breaths of poisonous air and shout your name to the universe. Let the enemy hear me. Let him find me and see the agony of my death. May it bring him satisfaction, but not pleasure. Ula. Ula! And that was our story. It honestly did not occur to me until I had scheduled this piece that today, December 7th, is Pearl Harbor Day in the United States. To delve into that would be gauche, I think. As I mentioned last week, Escape Pod is not accepting one-time donations in December. Our request instead is that you think of other people or organizations who need your help and put some time or money aside to support them instead. We did get one email critical of my tone in last week's intro. Pete thought my message that everybody can give something was a little heavy-handed and didn't take into account people who were hospitalized or truly in dire straits. That's a good point. I didn't mean to sound preachy, and yes, I was generalizing. There are exceptions to every rule, and if you're one of those exceptions, I hope you didn't take offense. Meanwhile, I stand by the spirit of what I said. If we can get just a few people to give of themselves who might not have otherwise, then our plan here is a success. Meanwhile, we have a sponsor this week, FundableFilms.com. Many of you have heard Andy Doan on Spaceship Radio. If you haven't, then you're missing a terrific radio theater podcast. Fundable Films is literally Andy's brainchild. It's his idea, and it won a competition from a design firm that's now bringing it into fruition. The idea here is that there are independent filmmakers with really, really good projects, but who don't have the money to get them off the ground. And there are film fans, like you and me, who would like to support these films, but can't afford to be angels. Fundable Films plays the matchmaker. You can invest as little as 50 bucks into a project, and you then own a piece of that film. If it makes money, you get royalties. And either way, you've helped someone with creativity and passion succeed. Right now, they're still building seed money to make sure they can get off the ground, and they've got a cool short-term offer. If you donate $30 to them right now, you can get a t-shirt and a voucher worth $50 toward the movie of your choice once they launch. I've given them my 30 bucks. You've heard me talk here about why the really smart SF movies tend to be the low-budget independent ones, and I like to put my money where my mouth is. I'm happy to support this, and if you like the idea of making movies happen, I hope you'll support them too. Well... That was a lot to cover. We're supposed to talk, too, about the feedback for Escape Pod 80, which was a union dues story, clean up in aisle 5. Okay, here's my report on the feedback. People really, really liked it. 
People really, really like the Union Dues series. I really, really like that people really, really like the Union Dues series, and we'll keep working with Mr. Durago to bring you more. Do you really, really like that? Good. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share us with your friends, and if your friends have Zunes, just tell them how to download us when the three days are up. That would be at escapepod.org, by the way. You can also buy our collection CDs at poddisc.com and get the pants scared off of you at pseudopod.org, a horror podcast. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. Make loud, not war. That was our show for this week. Our closing words come from the Buddha, who said in the Dhammapada, Hatred is never conquered by hatred. Hatred can only be conquered by compassion. We'll see you next week. Have fun. <laughs>